0: Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, editor-in-chief, joined by John Fiorillo, Executive Editor. So we've got just a couple of stories to talk about today, and unfortunately, one is a sad one. We just got news earlier this morning that a longtime National Fisheries Institute president John Connolly passed away at the age of 61. Now You know, there are association heads that come and go um, across the world, across different associations, and some leave a mark, some don't leave a mark, um, and some take the job seriously, some don't take the job that seriously, Um, but John Connolly was uh, different, and he came to the National Fisheries Institute in an interesting period. And I think it's it's safe to say that John was one of, if not the most transformational leader in that organization. And I think he's had a profound impact on, uh, on the North American seafood market and uh, the global seafood market as well. But John, I'm going to toss it over to you first. Uh, you knew uh, the National Fisheries Institute presidents before John. Uh, knew that organization well, and so you are—you know—you're well placed to talk a bit about what things were like in the North American industry prior to John, and um, and and what he brought to it.
1: Yeah, first of all, condolences to John's family. Um, He's—it's uh, a great loss for sure. Uh well yeah so prior to John joining in uh, 2003, um, for the longest time NFI was led by Lee Wedig who, I'm trying to think back my memory's a little fuzzy but I think he was the original leader of the group or it, at the very least the longtime leader of the group. He had back then he had the stature that John has had for the last 20 years. He was very respected, etc. He retired. Um, uh, Dick Gutting uh, stepped into his role for a bit. And uh, Dick was the legal counsel at the time, if I recall correctly, for NFI. And the group after the, the void left by Lee was pretty substantial. So the group was already struggling to kind of find where it wanted to go it's like any organization at some point you know they go through these these periods where you have to decide where the organization really wants to go and and what it wants to look like 10 15 years down the road that's kind of where they were and members were staying members were leaving there was you know in the defense of anybody who's led nfi it's a very fractured industry they're trying to hold together you know the crab guys and the shrimp guys and salmon guys and importers and exporters and etc so it's inherently a tough job to begin with anyways in 2003 john walked in the door from the chemical industry he was a professional um association manager by then he had come from a chemical association so he wasn't a seafood guy which of course immediately you know ding dongs like me in the press oh he doesn't know seafood you know and (laughs) okay wrong uh he didn't need to know seafood he knew a lot more he he knew about people and he knew about organizations so um I remember one of the first things he did was just kind of an internal, uh, study on what was, you know, what was broken about NFI, what, what, what needed to get, um, corrected. And that laid out his blueprint, I think for the next 20 years. And, uh, you know, I'll argue with anybody, he executed it masterfully and, um, I I know without a fact he leaves this industry and that organization in in way better shape than when he got there. So that's kind of the background as best as I recall it. But, um, yeah, John, uh, John changed that industry at a time it needed changing, and it wasn't simple. But he did it with, you know, he wasn't like, long arm of the law strong man kind of that he didn't take any of that approach he just got people to collaborate people to talk openly and honestly about the good the bad the ugly and uh, through that all he distilled a way to bring them all together and I mean look look at look what we got now we have we have I don't know if it's a decade's worth, but it's close, a decade's worth of future leaders that were cultivated under his watch at NFI. And think about that. Think about these people have all gone through uh, training's not the right word, but have all gone through the NFI future leaders program. And they will be the leaders of this and, and are already the leaders of this industry going forward. What a legacy
0: to leave behind. I think one of the biggest legacies that John left was um, was how the seafood changed its relationship with uh, the NGO and sustainable seafood uh, movement, if we can call it that. Um, at the time when John joined – uh, NFI, you know, the seafood industry, you'll recall, John, and, and I, of course, recall, the seafood industry was still very much at odds with the NGO community and with the notion of sustainable seafood. It was, it was, uh, there were eye rolls about it. There was, um, uh, you know, a, a generally a, a oppositional relationship um, and that extended, you know, uh, across the world. And I think that John, he joined the Marine Stewardship Council board. Um, I can't recall what year he did that, but that to me was, was a pretty watershed moment in that there was a recognition that the seafood industry needed to have a seat at the table on, on, uh, on the Marine Stewardship, uh, council and certification, um, uh, bodies, and I think that John's ability to uh, demonstrate that he was advocating for the industry while at the same time embracing the concept, the uh, the 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 movement of a uh, movement towards sustainable seafood, he saw that coming, and I think he knew it wasn't going to go away. He he by all means continued to defend the industry if he felt like the industry was being unfairly criticized, but he, um, you know, I I would say that the attitude among the seafood industry, um, about sustainability changed a, a lot because of John.
1: Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, John was one of those guys who, you could come in all on fire about something. Oh, the greenies, blah, blah, blah. And you could sit with John for about 10 minutes and have a completely different perspective. Not because he was trying to change your mind, but that he broadened your mind. He he would listen to what you had to say, and then he would expand the the, the entire thought universe for you. <laughs> and... People who do that show you show you where your arguments or your feelings may not be fully fleshed out, or you know may fall short. And when that happens, smart people tend to back up a second, rethink their ways. But John just had a way of doing that without, you know, there was no voice raising or arguing and any of that nonsense. It was just like. Well, let's let's think this through a little bit, right? Let's think this through. And you know, he's he did the same thing uh, with with the whole health message. You know, a lot of it is fighting these uh, old saws about mercury and poisoning, and and certainly NFI defends the industry uh, when when those things pop up. Um, but John went in a little different direction. While defending, he also said, well, we know seafood, biggest thing about seafood, it's the healthiest protein on the planet, bar none, bar none. So why don't we start telling people that? But why don't we do it with professionals that they listen to, doctors, dietitians and that whole program that has built up there not you know with with the nfi staff too he's got great staff his staff stays that's another great sign of a uh, a wonderful leader to me his staff has stayed for the most part for a long long time so they built this whole health you know kind of message up today it, it it's the seafood nutrition partnership uh um you know, which is basically carrying on that initiative and, and doing a great job at it. Um, so, yeah, he he just saw things before others or saw clearer than others. It, you know, it's 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 a talent for
0: sure. Yeah. And, you know, another thing just from a, a journalist perspective, too, in in uh, interviewing John and and taking calls from John uh, on and off the record You know, John was – he was always honest about giving a clear-eyed picture of the situation. Um, I never felt that John was trying to steer my work uh, or steer how we approached um, coverage of of something. He was very, very aware that we were going to criticize the industry, that we were not going to pull any punches – um, and I think he, he saw the value in having uh, a news outlet like that that wasn't just rah, rah, the industry's doing so great, but actually bringing a critical eye and pointing out issues that needed to be um, addressed. And there were a lot of times that, you know, I would get a call on my cell phone. Uh, after a story or a commentary or um or something that we had had written about, and John would sometimes just call to say, "Hey, that was a great piece, even if it was critical about the industry um and then he would kind of expound on it a bit and say, "Hey, these are some other angles on it that you know really uh are, are causing problems in the industry and so he was always uh he was always a direct. Uh, always honest, open. Um, and then my favorite thing, too, was he had a great sense of humor. He, he knew what our role as the press was, uh, and he loved giving, uh, giving us a hard time about uh our coverage um you know or or highlighting when uh, again when stories uh were important to the industry and i always appreciated that because i never felt that john was upset about negative coverage or coverage that uh, wasn 't flattering to the industry I think he he really realized the value of uh, of a free and open press, um, but I think he really um, when he did see that there were inaccuracies uh, in the the mainstream press, you know he came out and was um, you know very very direct about that and I imagine that when uh when some of these reporters contacted him from the new york times or washington post or the guardian i imagine that it it was um they expected something else than they probably got from john oh definitely i mean he was calm he was
1: rational you know um whenever a reporter calls and that's what they receive on the other side it it opens them up to listening more you know, rather than just calling for a quote or whatever it be. I want to, there's two great stories we have to share, Drew, um, related to John was uh, way back in 2006, I think we started the Interfish Person of the Year Award, and John was our very first, and back then, we gave a donation uh, to the charity of the winner's choosing, and we also <laughs> this was my idea, we also using their their um uh face uh created a like a superhero doll like um a doll of of the winner that we gave to them with with a trophy that we all, also presented. So we did, we gave John was the first one and we got his picture and that you could send it to this place and they'd you know, make a a doll in a suit in this case with like uh, John's face kind of as close as they could on the doll. And, you know, they're like eight inches tall. They're like those G.I. Joes and those types of things. Anyways, sent it to John and, you know, sent him the award. And that was that. And I don't know, Drew, it must have been, I want to say it was five or six years ago, we were just shooting the breeze with John in the hall at God knows what event and that came up somehow and John told this story of how that doll has been incorporated into their family Christmas they bring it out I I I'm so fuzzy with the details maybe you're you're gonna get get better ones than me Drew but I recall him saying they bring it out and they decorate it with you know kind of Christmas stuff and I, you know, they just laugh. It just bring it brings them laugh. I hope I hope they've been doing it, and I kind of hope they'll continue to do it, if if that's the case. But it was just it was it was a really funny story, and that's just John. He always had some some joke like that. But Drew, I, the other one
0: I'm thinking of is the lobster press <laughs> the lobster press story. Do you? Can you relate that one? I do remember. And uh, it was a a relative who I believe is on the NFI staff uh, now. Um, So he he was given the award. And, um, you know, for all the other person of the year recipients who uh, feel like they were shortchanged by not getting an action figure, we chose that because of John's sense of humor. So don't feel bad. And we're we're not going to go rush out and and get one. That was a special one for John. Um, So. uh, So. So he also took John out in, in Brussels to a restaurant. Um, and, uh, he was fantastic. He brought his son and his nephew, um, and, uh, and his, I believe it was, was his nephew and John was a little sheepish about this, but I think his nephew was reading, uh, right to left on the menu and decided he wanted to get, um, a lobster dish that used a lobster press. Um, and if you haven't ever seen a lobster press, that's not surprising because they are not that common. Uh, but essentially you get a fresh lobster and then you have this gigantic machine that you spin down with a screw and it presses the lobster and gets all the juices and pours it out in one angle. I mean, it's very, um, it's an amazing thing to see, but John got the biggest kick out of that. And, you know, again, was, was just kind of looking at us like, are you you sure this is okay to have this, you know, 13 year old buying this ridiculously expensive lobster dinner. So yeah, anyway, that did hurt our pocketbooks, but, uh, we got a, a great laugh. So I think that, that kind of, you know, those types of things, um, I think sum up John, you know, he always, uh, you know, his lovely wife was always with him at events. You know, he really, um, he, he just, took uh the job i think as uh as he was Uh, i i think what you what you saw was what you got with john um and i think that's that's an admirable quality in in anyone um but i i think most of all i really appreciated john's sense of humor and um there was there's never a never a time when i talked to john that there wasn't laughs uh shared um and uh and it, it was always a pleasure to um to, uh, to be interviewing talking um, and just uh, and just um, relaxing with John so he will be sorely sorely missed I'm sure we're gonna get a lot of memorial um, mails there's already a lot of statements coming in but this is all very very fresh and uh, yeah gonna miss John Connolly you meant to that. Big news last week. Uh, so the Washington State Department of Natural Resources and indeed the entire state of Washington banned finfish net pen farming in state waters. It was uh, just hard on the heels of the rejection of trout farming licenses that were being uh, renewals that were being sought by Cook Aquaculture, the Canadian seafood company. And it has really been interesting to track. There's been so many developments we were so busy on uh, all of last week, but especially on Friday – Trying to keep up with the news and and trying to track it as best we could as it was as it was racing uh, across uh, from people 's mouths to our pages now at the center of all this was hillary franz she 's the commissioner of the Washington Department of Natural Resources and when the cook licenses were rejected, um, Franz sent out a press release at the same time. Celebrating the uh, rejection of the licenses and teasing a little bit that there would be a big announcement uh, on uh, net pan aquaculture uh, in the state on Friday, which subsequently turned out to be the ban. Um, you know, John, this has been uh, an interesting saga for years and years and years. Um, in 2017, uh, one of Cook's farms suffered a, a collapse. Um, I believe it was something like 300,000 fish escaped. I could be, correct me if I'm wrong there, John. 263. Sorry, 263. Um, <laughs> and you could say that uh, I think at that point, it was probably a matter of time before uh, before Cook was uh, was pushed out of the state. I don't think that any of the groups that were critical of that Ever really stopped pushing against it, um, and even though uh, uh, non-native uh, salmonid farming was banned, Cook shifted over to uh, steelhead, ocean-going rainbow trout, and uh, and and that appeared to be uh, going ahead. It was uh, it was permitted and uh the the process seemed to be moving relatively uh, smoothly but i again i don't think there were ever i think there was always intentions that this would happen from some parties uh in the ngo community and and possibly uh in the government as well but um but it's it's been uh, quite a process. John, uh, tell us a little bit about, um, just the coverage last week. You were right there in the middle of all of it. Um, there was so much in the run-up to it. Maybe talk a little bit about how, uh, Cook and the Jamestown, uh, tribe, it's a, a, a indigenous group here in Washington state. Um, the project they were working on and, and how this has really, uh, just kind of come as a Big surprise to them and just all the different angles here.
1: Yeah, sure. I think it came as a big surprise to everybody. Um, certainly, cooks seemed to get surprised by it. And um, I mean, I, there wasn't really much tipping of the hand as to what was going to happen until those leases. Uh, until it was announced those leases wouldn't be renewed. So that's for two farms that Cook has uh, in in Washington waters, and they were raising steelhead, which was allowed. Uh, the law was changed after the collapse, and steelhead could be raised because they're native. Um, but, um, yeah, so all of a sudden, no, the re, re, uh, the leases aren't renewed. And then there's a sentence at the very end of that, original press release that says, uh, Commissioner Franz will make a statement on the future of uh, aquaculture on Friday. And so that was last Friday. So sure enough, Friday comes and boom, uh, everything's banned. Okay. While those two leases uh, for Cook were um, you know not renewed, there is currently um, a permit in front of the state for a lease to build uh, a steelhead farm in port angeles uh, which literally is like uh 10 miles from me five miles from me um it was a site where there was a cook farm uh when they bought the farms from icicle or when they bought icicle and um the book took it down because it was older and needed a lot of work. So this new farm is uh, proposed to replace that. will be built with the latest technology and everything like that. So at this point um, – <laughs> The permit uh, application is still before the state; hasn't been um, hasn't been acted on. Um, really, little to no communication between the Jamestown Tribe, which is doing this in a joint venture with Cook, uh, and the state. Um, the state hasn't really communicated anything on it yet. So, um, that seems dead in the water. But it's interesting because in her. In her press announcement on Friday, Commissioner Franz was joined by uh, another group of tribal leaders. So um, this issue, one could argue, has split the the tribal uh, factions within the state, perhaps. So we don't know where that's going to go um, at the moment. Um, but I think... I think one point that i find I found really disturbing, and uh we're still working on this, but during her press conference, Commissioner Franz made it a point to say she had talked to Cook and others about transitioning to land based uh aquaculture within the state. She remarked how she she's you know lords over all the lands and all the tide lands in the state, and there's lots more you know, uh, land, um, that isn't lands that she can, uh, use for, or that people could use for salmon farming, uh, land-based salmon farming. So that's what she said. And of course I called, uh, cook and I said, Hey, um, she just said this in a press conference. Um, can you tell me a little bit about these conversations? And, um, Joel Richardson, at, uh, he's a spokesperson for Cook, been there a long time, um, he said they never happened. There was never a conversation. Let me see if I can read his quote here. Hillary Franz and DNR, that's Department of Natural Resources, have never had conversations with Cook about doing land-based finfish aquaculture development in Washington, he said. Hillary Franz's statement in her press conference about that are misle- are completely false. So, my question is, did she intentionally lead, mislead people during the press conference the, the press conference was attended by plenty of journalists uh, local uh, seafood press, etc cetera, etc cetera. so were they being misled what what is actually going on here and we're, we're we're trying to get to the bottom of it but um yeah, it just uh, the, the things just went sideways very quickly with this um you know there's been rumors in the seattle papers that uh commissioner franz is eyeing a run at the governorship uh in two years so is this uh, her um, attempt to start building constituencies that will propel her into the big uh the big chair i have no idea um but nevertheless it, things took a hard hard turn and um, unless there's a lawsuit or something like that, it's. I don't think things are going to change. And the really sad part that, uh, and you'll hear this from the aquaculture community, is there's there's a ton of science that it was before her um, on the safety of aquaculture in the state, the way it's you know set up now with steelhead, etc. And um, just apparently ignored it all just didn't didn't take it, or maybe took it into account didn't care didn't find it convincing but it's from noah it's from her uh department of uh, fish and wildlife it, the it, it's legit science in other words not a bunch of hocus pocus old saws that you know somebody's bringing up so yeah you you decide for yourself what might be going on here
0: Well, yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts on this um, as we kind of go about covering it. And um, I think, you know, it goes to our conversation, John, about the U.S. aquaculture industry or lack thereof. And, you know, this is one more example of how aquaculture development in the United States is – really really moving slowly um for a range of reasons but one of them is interests against uh, aquaculture um interestingly enough um there was a bipartisan group of lawmakers that went out to see uh the the jamestown scallum uh, site and i believe they went to a uh, uh one of cook's farm's and they came back, and remember, bipartisan—that's rare in any any uh, government. And they wrote a note to, uh, wrote a letter to Franz saying, "Hey," and the quote was, "These are not your grandfather's fish farms." And so there was this almost immediate awareness that um, that the perception of aquaculture and and salmonid or net pen aquaculture. It can change radically as soon as you get out to see the farms. Now, there may you you may still oppose them. Um, And certainly, I think in B.C., there are groups that have said, yeah, we know we know how they function. Groups that are in, you know, in partnership or have been in partnership in in, uh, some cases with uh, salmon farming companies and said, yeah, you know, they're aware how they work. Um, but have said, you know, not in this area or, you know, have just decided it's not right for their lands, but not having been onto a, a fish farm and made these decisions, I think is, um, is short-sighted because I think it can actually change the way people think about what, a uh, what these operations do, um, what kind of jobs they provide to people, um, and, and so I think that's a little bit of a shame. I, and I think there will always be when there is opposition to development by whoever it is, but especially the seafood industry, when there's opposition, the argument is always from the seafood industry, or at least one of the arguments is that it takes away coastal job opportunities. That's a pretty common reaction when there's a press release afterwards or you do an interview with them and you know so it's it's expected it's expected uh businesses want to have fewer regulations and and they want to grow but you know it's also true uh that a lot of these areas on the coast um these coastal jobs are simply not there there used to be uh, fishing and processing industries that were in these areas they're no longer there Um, I think I took most issue with the idea was with the celebration of this and the way that it was sort of pushed out to Washingtonians and to, um, you know, to, to all of the public because this didn't save a single fish, a single wild fish. This had, this did not, uh, protect one fish. Uh, I really believe that because, you know, the the issues with wild salmon in the Pacific Northwest are not about farm salmon. They are about habitat. So is there a problem with wild salmon in the Pacific Northwest? Absolutely, because they have no place to spawn. And so you don't get to have it both ways. It's sort of a feel-good announcement that ah, oh, we're getting rid of commercial finfish farming. There was no way it was going to expand anyway. I mean, maybe this Cook site, this this partnership with the Scallum tribe, maybe that was going to go through, but probably not a whole lot more than that. And so the sort of uh, the the communication was, oh hey now we've stopped this, uh, this industry that was coming in, taking over the waters. I mean, please no. Uh, and you know, I think she also mentioned something about it impacting orcas as well and marine habitat. And, you know, I think again, it was, it was used as a way to gain attention, uh, as you said, John, to highlight this to a group of constituents, um, and I, I again, I think it's a shame because I think there was a lot of information that probably some of these tribes that joined her didn't have. Um, because I, I think this idea that, oh, it's, you know, we have a thriving commercial fishing industry in Washington State is a joke. You don't. You cannot have wild fish that isn't hatchery supplemented. By the way, I can walk and probably most Washington residents can drive or walk not more than five miles, I would say, and find a hatchery with the exception of people in eastern Washington. But even then, so most of the fish that swims out in the Puget Sound is from a hatchery or it's supplemented with a hatchery or it's somehow been mixed with hatchery populations. And there's just no wild salmon fishery to speak of here. Now, it has extreme cultural importance to the First Nations or the Native Americans uh, in Washington state. Absolutely. And uh, that should be really taken into account. However, what should also be taken into account is what are the job opportunities going to be? So what will the state do uh, then to help provide uh, resources, provide jobs, provide, um, you know, provide, uh, income for some of these coastal residents and, um, and native tribes. Um, and again, you don't just get to celebrate salmon farms being gone, move on and say, well, that's taken care of. Now we've got our wild salmon, uh, sorted out. No, you don't. You really don't. And unless Seattle is going to tear down Amazon headquarters and somehow radically remake the entire economy uh, so that all these people moving into uh, Seattle and Vancouver, for that matter, unless they're going to change that and dig up the asphalt and concrete to have places for wild salmon to spawn, they're never going to be in the populations that they used to be. Full stop. Yeah, I mean the argument that you know, cutting
1: out well in this case two farms, let's let's remember this is two farms, this big industry she keeps talking about that cutting these out is going to bring back is going to bring back uh, wild salmon. I mean, please. That's a juvenile disingenuous argument and she knows it. I, I mean, she would have to know it. I hope. Um, so yeah. And, you know, I go back long enough that in the late eighties, early nineties, there was a commercial salmon commercial fishery in Puget Sound. There was uh, a saying a fleet. There was a gill net fleet. There was a troll fleet off the coast. Um, uh, they, you know, they they are a shadow of themselves if they still exist at all. Um, part of that is because of the Fraser River as well, because those salmon come down here and get caught as well. But nevertheless, um, there, there's no wild salmon fishery. And like you said, Drew, I mean, the idea that you're going to bring it back with what you just did on Friday is... I mean it's it it reaches new heights of ridiculousness, you know, so um, but there you have it and um, and at, at this point, I don't know if there'll be a lawsuit by a Cook or anybody else, and maybe there will. I don't know if that would change anything, um but at this point, yeah the though there, there literally is no salmon farming allowed in California, Oregon. Washington or Alaska, so um, yeah, it takes yeah.
0: out takes out the West Coast. So there you go. Well, I mean, you, you, you're seeing this a lot around the world. You're seeing opposition, coastal opposition, and and um, and uh, you know, government opposition to, to growth of salmon farming in particular. Um, but, you know, it, it does, again, it has a larger effect, I think, on coastal economies, um, on the perception of coastal economies. Um, you know, uh, again, I think the, the announcement and the way that it was celebrated really was, as you said, John, disingenuous. I mean, it, it was heralded as this huge step, and it really, really wasn't. It affected – one company, really, um, financially, right? Um, Of course, you could say the future of of the Jamestown-Scallum and Cook partnership that's also affected there. But look, Cook Aquaculture Aquaculture is going to survive. They just acquired an Australian salmon farmer, Tassal. Cook is going to be just fine. So let's not worry about uh, Cook uh, uh, having too much of a financial impact here. But Uh, What it has done is it really has closed off a full avenue for a long, long time to come. And there are a lot of advancements that are happening in uh, salmon farming, closed containment, semi-closed containment, all kinds of things. And that's just what we know now. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Um, But what we do know, what we are very aware of is that commercial fishing, if anything, is going to continue to become less and less relevant, uh, certainly in the Pacific Northwest. It's just a fact. And I would venture to guess, and let's see how this all plays out, but I would venture to guess that there will next be a movement to remove uh, hatcheries as well uh, because of the impact that uh, um, hatchery... Uh, hatchery raised uh, fish could have on uh, wild populations. so um, again uh, conservation critically important uh, First Nations uh, Native American rights critically important but there is a element here of um, of jobs and uh, self-determination and coastal economies that um, I think it's a nice Moment for friends and it's a a nice moment for um, some of the NGOs that have really been pushing against these farms. But then the dust settles and you have a decision like this made and you're left with, I'm not sure what, I don't know what the next step is for these economies. Um, Tourism is often touted. That's silly to me. Um, and I don't think that's a coastal job that in general, um, a lot of people, some people want to be involved in, but you know, people, people in the coasts want to work. They want to work on the ocean. Uh, they want to work with a lot of, you know, seafood. They want to, they want to actually be connected with the place that they live and for better for worse, salmon farming, uh, and aquaculture is, is a modern way to do that, but um, You know, I think uh, I think, as you said, John, I don't see any anything changing here. Now, we did sort of call uh, privately. We were kind of back and forth speculating what would happen on Friday. And we kind of guessed, OK, something about land based farming will be mentioned here, uh, because this is obviously there has been some work in looking at what's going on in B.C., um, you know, I think several of the, the groups, the Wildfish Conservancy was was there with the announcement and obviously played an important role and would be very aware of what's happening in BC and other areas. Um but you know, the fact that while that uh, land-based salmon farming was brought up was not a surprise. We'll figure out why she said what she did. I mean, said what she said. I mean politicians say a lot of things and you know, also kind of in the heat of the moment you can try to spin things in a slightly, uh, more positive, uh, way, you know, and, and land-based salmon farming th- that's years away, years away from being a, a valid or relevant, uh, 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 business in any kind of scale. So, um, yeah, a very, very strange week, uh, a strange, uh, decision. And in in, to me, in how it was rolled out and how it was presented. And you yeah, know, I'm I'm very um it was good to see uh the different tribal reactions to it and it seemed that there was a very, very positive reception to it. At the same time, um okay, what's next? So I really do hope that Commissioner Franz uh, and the Wildfish Conservancy and uh, other uh, other NGO groups that have pushed for uh, net pen um, finfish aquaculture to be banned has some good ideas about how to uh, to create coastal jobs and uh, support the economies of these different Native American Native American tribes. Um, I haven't heard those ideas yet. Yeah, well, don't hold your breath. John, we better wrap it up because we've got work to do and all of these uh, things we're talking about need to be explored in our reporting. So uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Remember that you can find us on IntraFish.com. You can sign up for newsletters there. You can go to the uh, App Store and download the IntraFish app or Google Play, and that's the best way to keep up with our news. Uh, As well as, if you are a subscriber, you can sign up for Keyword Alerts which gets you an announcement on companies you want to follow, species you want to follow as soon as we publish news. So if you had alerts for Cook Aquaculture, uh, you got a lot of news first before anybody else did last week. So thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.